is a podcast all about antimicrobial resistance and how this growing health crisis can affect our daily lives. Um, I'm Mara Zelt. I am the project manager with the I Am Responsible Project, uh, one of the regular hosts of this series. This week's episode is coming to us from uh, the class that we teach called Antimicrobial Resistance from a One Health Perspective. Today's discussion is from a lecture by Dr. Lee Ann Permittis from Virginia Tech University. Um, and she was speaking to the class on the issue of stormwater management as it relates to antimicrobial resistance in the environment. Throughout this recording, you will hear my voice asking questions where we edited the recording or where audio was unclear. So let's go ahead and jump right in. I'm Leanne Kremitas. I'm an associate professor in biological systems engineering at Virginia Tech. So I was looking for a good official definition of stormwater. And the best I got was that it's just any flow associated with precipitation events. So that's kind of vague. But basically, rain, snowmelt, you can actually see this. After that happens, there's water, there's runoff that flows along the land we've been dealing with stormwater for literally thousands of years. So why are we still talking about it? Well, one, it's impervious cover. When we build cities, we change the ground cover. We have ground cover that doesn't infiltrate. Anything that doesn't infiltrate ends up running off the land. So when we have up to, you know, 100% impervious surface, all that water has to go somewhere and it goes hurtling down the street. At the same time, we also have climate change. When we say something like a thousand year storm, but in reality, what we know is that stronger storms are more common. So if we have stronger storms and more impervious cover, we have really high flows. And the immediate thing we worry about is flooding. But as those of us concerned with water and environmental quality, we also worry about all those pollutants that come along for the ride. So anything that we put on the land, soil amendments, so manures, composts, pesticides, pet waste, if we forget to pick up after our dogs, septic systems, distribution system leaks, and anything from our roadways that is washed off in the stormwater. Can you tell us a little bit more about how antimicrobial resistance uh, could get mixed up with stormwater to begin with? So in stormwaters, we can have human sewage. Human sewage is generally something that um, is higher in low flow. But I just mentioned if we have leaking pipe networks, so we, have, we know that we aren't replacing pipes at the rate that we should. We have pipes that have breaks and are subject to surface water. Those can leak downstream when they get filled up with water or if we have combined uh, sanitary and storm sewers. Septic fields about, it depends on the measure and where you're living in the world, but um, 10 to 15% of homes are actually dependent on uh, septic drainage. So all of those, because we know humans use antibiotics, you have some amount of those microbes that are gonna be resistant 
and they have the potential to end up in stormwater. Now this brings up wastewater treatment. All wastewater treatment in America is based on this multiple barrier approach. So we actually, we will have things like a bar screen and grit removal to remove big trash. We sediment things out in aerators and clarifiers and then aerate. We have activated sludge, all these different ways to reduce the amount of pollutants in our wastewater. Each of those barriers is also gonna re remove some of the antibiotic bacteria. We're trying to remove fecal bacteria, we're gonna remove all of them, right? The problem is we're not necessarily removing antibiotic resistant genes. And we know if those genes are still in the discharge, they can, we can have horizontal gene transfer to other organisms. So the best that we do is about one to three logs, so about 99.9% .9 can be removed. But all the rest of that gets flushed out. So in addition to these human sources, we also have livestock and some other domestic animals. When it comes to livestock, the majority of those animals, we reuse their waste on soils as a soil amendment. It acts as a conditioner to provide extra organic material in addition to nutrients. But over time, we're continuing to use manure on soils. Before anyone says, oh, we shouldn't do that, we should just ban it. Well, what do we do with it otherwise? We produce an awful lot of manure in the world. The problem is, is that we also use antibiotics in agriculture. So in the United States, animals are not supposed to receive antibiotics unless they're actually sick or under a veterinarian's care. But prior to that, we used antibiotics kind of as a stopgap. So to make beef cattle get more beefy, uh, make dairy cattle make more milk. So we have more product. Anything that is not entirely metabolized is excreted, which means it goes on the land. So after a storm event, you have the possibility that you have runoff from direct resistant organisms that were in the gut of the animal or antibiotics themselves, which then might stimulate resistance in the soil or downstream. What has your research uh, told you about the risks of antimicrobial resistance associated with stormwater and stormwater management? So we had a study a few years ago where we actually looked at, we had, um, gosh, 27 plots and we put different soil amendments. So we put on um, compost, raw manure, inorganic fertilizer, and we left some plots barren. And then we collected rainfall after natural rainfall events. We also were testing the soil. This was a huge project, et cetera, et cetera. But in looking at the measures of antibiotic resistant genes in the soil, we found in our first storms, so we apply all the soil amendments, we're growing different vegetables. First storm, we didn't really find a lot in the runoff of plots with um, no amendment, so just left bare dirt or inorganic chemical fertilizer. But we absolutely recovered Sol-1 and runoff from cow manure amendments. So either compost or raw manure. But that kind of makes sense, right? Like we added cow waste, we added antibiotics, we collect things in the runoff. But as the growing season progressed, things don't, aren't quite as easy to make sense of. 
we actually see quite a bit from our no amendment control. So kind of a hypothesis generator here is that we wonder how long the effects of manure lasted on the soil versus overcome with the natural kind of richness of the soil. And what we found was that we could, we had over a hundred times the loading of resistant genes transported in one storm, which might seem obvious, but what this is getting at is that storms really are where we need to focus in, term, in terms of preventing downstream transport, right? This is when the most exciting stuff happens. There's increasing research that other things that come along for the ride in stormwater and wastewater also can reduce can induce resistance downstream. So any kind of pharmaceutical residual, cows, humans, whatever we don't process in our bodies goes down the toilet or on the field, depending on if you're a human or a cow. All of those antibiotics then can in induce, create a selective pressure to induce resistance downstream. There's also some research that is showing that other pharmaceutical residuals, like things like antidepressants, um, some uh, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, which are really common, especially in big populations, can also, and I haven't really seen good like reasons why, but they exert some selective pressure that encourages antibiotic resistance. Also metals from agriculture, industry, and roadways, and personal care products. That's really fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit more about why that is? What are what is causing those other products, non-antimicrobials, to induce antimicrobial resistance? And the way these work, I find this really interesting. And full disclosure, this is something I have a PhD student just now working on, so I'm just learning about it. But this is issues of co-resistance and cross-resistance. So the idea that sometimes you have things like, for instance, resistance to metals, the things like cadmium, right, which might come from an industrial site or from an agricultural site. The, the genes that are code for cadmium resistance and for some antibiotic resistance travel together on the same plasmid. So if the organism lyses or if this plasmid is transferred, you have co-resistance traveling together from organism to organism. You can also have cross-resistance, which means that you have the same method or the same strategy for getting rid of metals in antibiotics, so something like an efflux pump, or these things are expressed together, so they might be on the same bit of chromosomal DNA. So when you are expressing and developing strategies when the cell is getting rid of the antibiotics, it's also getting rid of something like a metal. So that's why they kind of move together, which means that stormwater becomes this big giant vat of both resistant organisms and things that encourage the development of further resistance. So you mentioned that anything on roadways will run off in stormwater. So has there been any research looking at the impacts of using de-icers or salts on microbial populations and the possibility of them selecting for resistance? Yes, that's a great, great point. I, um, I have some colleagues, I'm on actually a PhD committee where they're looking at freshwater salinization, because you're exactly right, especially after 
before a snow event, we dump salt on the ground, all of which disappears into our receiving water. And I, I had not, I'm not, I haven't seen anyone, I'm sure someone is looking at the impact on resistance, but that is gonna really change the selective pressures of the downstream ecology. Do you think the stormwater antimicrobial resistance picture would change significantly if there was a recommendation or even regulation that manure be treated before it is applied to fields? Sure. One of the things in that study I showed you with the runoff and then in a, the subsequent is we were looking at the effect of composting. So rather than applying raw manure, applying compost and manure in accordance with FISMA guidelines, so the Food Safety Modernization Act. And composting did reduce the total number of and, um, but it also caused some shifts. So it's not, it definitely reduced the number, but it didn't completely delete the risk. So that's something that, again, yes, I agree. If we made those standard, even for things like silage, like corn silage that just cows are going to eat, we would reduce the amount of potential resistance in the environment, but we aren't going to negate it. And I don't know that we need to negate it because it's hard to know, right? There's no standard for how many resistant genes. Resistance is a natural phenomenon. There's no good quantitative measure for what's okay and doesn't pose any risk. And, you know, right now, for example, wastewater treatment plants, we don't say you have to get the resistant count below a certain level because they're not testing for that. That's and right. So, because, you know, not every wastewater treatment plant can do that. And so where do you kind of, in terms of, of these rules, you know, what, what are some things that might be done in terms of, you know, the store, whether it's stormwater combined sewer overflows or, or, you know, just wastewater treatment plants in terms of kind of regulations. Yeah, I do not know. It's funny you brought that up because I was looking at a paper about um, reverse osmosis and how it is really, really great at getting rid of resistant genes, right? You can get down well below, you know, kind of almost at the levels that you remove viruses, right? But I don't know how capable we are at putting those in every single system in the United States and certainly the world. Because on my other, my other side of my mind, I work with these really small rural drinking and wastewater systems that are failing at even getting rid of coliforms or meeting turbidity levels, right? Completely failing. So we can technology our way out of anything, but whether we can make that technology available to everyone, I'm not sure. And then when you look at the developing world, right, where people might not even have access to sanitation, I'm not sure where you go. It seemed kind of, you know, I don't know where you go from there. I definitely think distributing fewer antibiotics out there requiring prescriptions, et cetera, is important. But then again, I'm not someone who doesn't have access to safe drinking water and a sick kid. What would you say are the next steps for managing or researching uh, stormwater management with antimicrobial resistance in mind? 
Well, if I go back to my quantitative risk assessment days of yesteryear, um, I would argue, so if you do quantitative risk assessment, you have hazard identification, exposure assessment, dose response assessment, and then risk characterization. We're really still here in hazard identification. How markers of antibiotic resistance, be it antibiotic resistant genes, actual microorganisms that you can culture in the presence of antibiotics are present, um, antibiotics themselves, where those are, whether we're transferring genes between pathogenic bacteria and non-pathogenic bacteria, um, whether we're worried more about gene uptake or live bacteria, this is kind of where we are. Things like exposure assessment, stormwater, I just made it sound super scary, but how are humans exposed to stormwater? Probably downstream, right, if you have recreational areas, but no one's actually swimming during a storm or I hope not, because that seems kind of dangerous. I once read a risk assessment paper where they just assumed people swam through culverts. And I'm like, I feel like that's not a good idea. I feel like if you're swimming through a culvert during a storm, you probably have bigger problems than whether you're going to get an antibiotic resistant infection. So also beyond recreational exposure, how does this feed into our irrigation networks, our drinking water networks? Do things persist after storms? We don't really know. Um, the big thing, how do we relate markers? We're moving more towards genetic markers of um, resistance. How does that relate to health outcomes? Which ARGs are associated with health outcomes? Um, are there target illnesses? We know theoretically this can happen, but there's no, if you ingest X number of ERM-F genes, you are this percent likely to get sick, right? And then moving back even another step, if there are this many ERMF genes in a culvert, how likely is that to impact the irrigation system downstream? And these are all important things. We have to lay a really good foundation with hazard identification so we can move on. And finally, we can get to risk characterization. So it seems to me in science lately, you really have to justify your existence. Um, how do we best prevent disease and illness? How do we preserve antibiotic usefulness and prevent economic losses? And that's where we are headed. Well, thank you so much. That was super informative and a great discussion. And I really appreciate you. It was fun. Thank you.